text this morning is the book of Philemon. We'll be spending most of our time in the first three verses, but as we look forward to the next few weeks, we will be looking at this book together. Uh, We're going to read the entire letter uh, this morning. If you have your Bibles, please open them to Philemon. If not, the entire letter is printed for you in the bulletin. The letter of Paul to Philemon. Paul, a prisoner for Christ Jesus, and Timothy, our brother, to Philemon, our beloved fellow worker, and Aphia, our sister, and Archippus, our fellow soldier, and the church in your house. Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. I thank my God always when I remember you in my prayers, because I hear of your love and of the faith that you have toward the Lord Jesus and for all the saints. And I pray that the sharing of your faith may become effective for the full knowledge of every good thing that is in us for the sake of Christ. For I have derived much joy and comfort from your love, my brother, because the hearts of the saints have been refreshed through you. Accordingly, though I am bold enough in Christ to command you to do what is required, yet for love's sake I prefer to appeal to you, I, Paul, an old man, and now a prisoner also for Christ Jesus. I appeal to you for my child, Onesimus, whose father I became in my imprisonment. Formerly he was useless to you, but now he indeed is useful to you and to me. I am sending him back to you, sending my very heart. I would have been glad to keep him with me in order that he might serve me on your behalf during my imprisonment for the gospel. But I preferred to do nothing without your consent, in order that your goodness might not be by compulsion, but of your own accord. For this, perhaps, is why he was parted from you for a while, that you might have him back forever, no longer as a bondservant, but more than a bondservant, as a beloved brother, especially to me, but how much more to you, both in the flesh and in the Lord. So if you consider me your partner, receive him as you would receive me. If he has wronged you at all or owes you anything, charge that to my account. I, Paul, write this with my own hand. I will repay it. To say nothing of you, you're owing me, even your own self. Yes, brother, I want some benefit from you in the Lord. Refresh my heart in Christ. Confident of your obedience, I write to you, knowing that you will do even more than I say. At the same time, prepare a guest room for me, for I am hoping that through your prayers I will be graciously given to you. Epaphras, my fellow prisoner in Christ Jesus, sends greetings to you. And so do Mark, Aristarchus, Demas, and Luke, my fellow workers. The grace of the Lord Jesus Christ be with your spirit. Let us turn to the Lord and ask for his help as we seek to understand this particular passage of scripture. Father God, we thank you for all the letters, but particularly this letter we have before us. We thank you for its confession of affection, of unity, and of fellowship that exists within the body of Christ. Would you by your spirit give us not only that same sense of fellowship, but better understanding of it as we open it this morning. May my words be true. May they be faithful. May you revive us by your word this morning, we pray. In Christ's name, amen. One of the sad realities in these technologically advanced days is the near extinction of handwritten letters. Everything is now email or text or whatever the newest digital messaging media is today. I have no idea what it is. It seems to change every five seconds. I have been recently working my way through a World War 
II documentary, and one of the takeaways, there's been many, has been the value of letters. World leaders at the time were writing letters to one another. Military commanders were writing, were communicating constantly via letters. And most personal were the letters that soldiers regularly wrote to their families back home. There is something about a letter that digital communication simply cannot replace, no matter how hard it may try. And up until his passing this past winter, Bethany's grandfather was a fairly faithful letter writer. Even when we only lived 15 minutes away, we would still receive his letters in the mail. And while he wrote individual letters, oftentimes his letters would be written to the entire extended family. At the very least, his four children and his eight grandchildren and oftentimes friends and anyone else who he could think of. And in fact, just a few weeks ago, Bethany's aunt sent us the last letter that Pop-Pop wrote, but never mailed. It was a bittersweet moment for us to read, even as he now is in the presence of our Savior. But these letters were always a mix of updates and stories, updates regarding the happenings of the family. Some of them he learned through Facebook. Some of them he learned through conversation. Um, and the stories were from his past. And seeing that he lived to the ripe old age of 100, he had many stories, and he loved to tell them. But every once in a while, one of Pop-Up's letters would be a bit more personal. Something would move Pop-Up to share just a little bit more of his heart. Maybe it was his joy over the last time that all the family got together and sat in a room and typically listened to Pop-Up tell a story. Maybe it was concerns he had for individual family members. Sometimes it was a request for prayer for himself or someone else in the family. Maybe it was just things he would like to see happen specifically or in general. Paul's letter to Philemon is similar to one of these letters. Yes, Paul wrote a bunch of letters. We have 12 of them in the New Testament for us. So is Philemon that much different than any of the others? Truth of the matter is, yes, it is. It is the shortest of Paul's letters at only 355 words. It is the least theological or at least explicitly theological. Absent are those long doctrinal excurses that were common throughout Paul's letters. And while the basic structure is similar to all his other letters, this one is far more personal. It's personal in its tone. It's personal in its content. Hopefully that came out as we read the letter together. Paul is writing to a particular person and those closely associated with him, namely his family and his church. And what is Paul seeking in this letter? What is so important that would require Paul to write a personal letter to Philemon? We're going to unpack it more fully in the weeks ahead, but generally the entire letter of Philemon is about genuine Christian fellowship. Paul stresses the love and humility and respect that should be at work in the church. No one is exempt, not even Paul himself, the great apostle and evangelist. Everything about this letter points to the practical outworking of what it means to be the body of Christ living together. So therefore, as the church, let us then pursue genuine fellowship with one another. The message of this letter, I think, is especially timing today, timely today. Before this pandemic hit, genuine fellowship was not easy. During this pandemic, genuine fellowship has not been easy. 
And then you throw in the current social strife, genuine fellowship still is not easy. And moving forward, genuine fellowship will not be easy. There remain many obstacles, both internal and external, to our fellowship as the body of Christ. But by the grace of God, through his spirit, we can be a church known for and faithfully living out genuine gospel fellowship. The outline is there for you in the bulletin. Three points. First, we'll look at how fellowship conveys affection. Then how fellowship creates unity. And then finally, fellowship caused by the gospel. And we first see, just in these first three verses, we're going to spend most of our time this morning, that fellowship conveys affection. Paul makes it abundantly clear throughout the letter, but even in these three verses, the love that he has for his fellow believers. He shows it first by employing this familial language from the very beginning. He says, Timothy, our brother. He says, Athea, our sister. And throughout the letter, he goes on in verse 7, calls Philemon, my brother, my beloved brother, in verse 16, and again in 20, brother. And we already know from his other letters that Paul has a deep affection for Timothy, his child in the faith. So on one level, we expect this. But in this letter, Paul is writing as one communicating with family members. To those he has deep love for, he has a deep care and concern for. He's writing to those that he shares a familial bond with. Sinclair Ferguson expresses these familial bonds well in his little book, Children of the Living God. He says this, Brother is one of the most emotive words in the human vocabulary. It conveys the idea of coming from the same womb. This is what makes brothers special. The same is true of Christians. The womb which has given us new life is the empty tomb of Jesus. It unites us as members of the same family. Christians are family, and we're affectionate ones at that. This is why Paul later on in in 1 Timothy 5 would instruct the church Do not rebuke an older man, but encourage him as you would a father. Younger men as brothers, older women as mothers, younger women as sisters, in all purity. This is how members of the church we are meant to view one another, as dearly loved members of the same family. I must admit that I found it a bit odd not growing up Presbyterian when I attended my first Presbytery meeting, and fathers and brothers, the standard greeting, is being thrown around Every, every moment and any moment. But this captures the affection that should be present among believers. We are brothers, we are sisters, we are fathers, we are mothers to one another. Not generically, with some loose tie, but intimately because of Jesus Christ. But Paul takes it even one step further. He calls Philemon our beloved And later on, speaking of Onesimus, he calls him a beloved brother. This term beloved is the same term God used to describe the son at his baptism. It drips with love and affection and delight. This is the case for Paul because as he hints in verse 19, Philemon was likely converted through Paul's ministry. And we know that Paul feels about this way about Onesimus because he calls him my child in verse 10 in my very heart, in verse 12. The affection that Paul has for these two men runs deep. 
And therefore, as we are going to see in the weeks ahead, Paul longs for these two brothers to be reconciled. And we see that his affection is also displayed for Philemon's wife, Achaia, for the church that is in their house. And he hopes that not only will the reconciliation be between Philemon and Onesimus, but between Onesimus, his wife, the entire church. Now I do want to be careful how far I push this notion of affection, because there is an obvious difference between 1st century Asia Minor and 21st century America. The acceptance, appreciation, and welcome of physical displays of affection are not the same. But here, notice Paul is not necessarily calling for or even displaying physical affection. Affection is not simply physical displays. As this letter proves, affection is expressed just as much in the things that we say and the things that we do. Earlier, J.C. read from 1 Samuel 20, where we saw the affection that David and Jonathan had for one another. At times, as he was reading it, it may have made a few of us a little bit uncomfortable. There's weeping, there's hugging, there's kissing. It's certainly physical, but it was also much more. In their affection for one another, we see Jonathan becoming angry and grieving over his father's treatment of David. And in affection, Jonathan puts his own life on the line for his brother David. And then out of mutual love for one another, they make a covenant of peace with each other for not only themselves, but also their families. And if there seems to have been one benefit from this pandemic, at least among the body, even here at Covenant, I would say it has been an increase in affection. The old adage that absence makes the heart grow fonder appears to be alive and well. And this is not to say that affection wasn't present in our midst beforehand. But just in the past few weeks, as we've been able to gather a little bit more, it, is be, it has been clear that there is love, that there is genuine affection that we have for one another. It can be heard in the conversations that are had either here after the service or in the parking lot. It can be seen in facial expressions, even just from facial expressions from the nose up. And as I said it before, and I will say it again, Bethany and I and our girls have felt it from the moment we got here. That point came up just this past week as we were talking about things. So let me encourage you, encourage all of us, to continue to demonstrate the deep affection that we have for one another as the people of God. May it be heard in how we talk to one another and about one another. May it be seen in the tangible ways that we love one another both when we're physically present or absent. Because what a great opportunity we have to be a light in this dark world simply by holding one another with great love and affection. Let us be faithful in seeing our fellowship overflow with deep affection and love for those in the body of Christ. But not only does Paul express affection, but also he shows that fellowship creates unity. Paul makes abundantly clear the oneness that exists between believers. If it has been rightly said of mankind in general that no man is an island, is an island, how much truer is it for the people of God? We are not individuals doing our own thing who also happen to share a few things in common with one another. No, we are united to one another. We are one, whether in this room together 
whether watching via the live stream or someone sitting in a service having no idea what's going on in this room anywhere else on the planet. This is why stories of the struggles of our brothers and sisters in this country should move us. And this is why stories of the plight of our brothers and sisters around the world should also move us. I would encourage you to read some of these stories. This past week has been horrific things going on in the church around the world. But we are united with them regardless of how near or far they may be. Think of Paul's analogy that he uses of the human body in 1 Corinthians 1. We are individuals working together as a unified whole to glorify our Savior. Or take the marriage analogy that he uses in Ephesians 5. Together, we are the singular bride of Christ, desperately waiting for that marriage supper of the Lamb. And in this letter, Paul's expression of unity is a bit more subtle than those analogies, but no less profound. Notice how in the first three verses, how many times Paul uses the simple pronoun, our. He says, our brother, our beloved fellow worker, our sister, our fellow soldier, our Father and Lord Jesus Christ. If you're counting, that's five times in three verses. Paul, for sure, feels a kinship with Philemon, Aphia, Aristarchus, and the church. And he feels this for every church and believer, whether he knows them or has ever met them in person. But Paul is also speaking here on behalf of those who are with him. He's speaking on behalf of Timothy, of Onesimus, of Mark, of Aristarchus, Demas, and Luke, and even likely... Uh, Tychicus, who in Colossians 3.7 brought this letter to Philemon. They are in agreement, they're in union with Paul about their love and affection for this church and this particular man, Philemon. Philemon is their co-worker, he's their brother. Aphia is their sister. Archippus is their brother in arms. All these believers are intimately united with one another because of Jesus Christ. But Paul provides more than just a repeated pronoun to emphasize how all believers are united as one. He calls Philemon a fellow worker, as he does those who are with him in verse 24. And in verse 27, he appeals to Philemon as his partner. What exactly was their partnership? I think Paul provides a picture of it in verses 4 through 7, which we'll look at next week. But like Paul, Philemon loved the church and loved Christ. He served both he served both faithfully in the role he was given, whatever exactly that role was. Maybe it was pastor, maybe it was elder, maybe it was just a layperson, maybe he was just the host of the church. But whatever his exact role is, he and Paul were unified together in it. And Paul even confesses that he himself has gotten encouragement and comfort through the faithful ministry of Philemon. And in a similar vein, he calls Archippus a fellow soldier. It may have been that while Philemon's ministry concentrated on the church in his home, Archippus may have been a little bit more widespread. Maybe he was a fellow evangelist and preacher like Paul. Or maybe he had a larger role not only in this church, but in all the churches in the areas of Laodicea and Colossae. But regardless of what exactly his role is, Paul calls him a brother in arms. As one commentator describes, he's joined in the labors and conflicts for the cause of Christ. Archippus is there with Paul in the trenches. 
He is battling the spiritual forces of evil alongside of Paul, of Timothy, and the rest. He shares their scars, the fatigue, the defeats, and the victories. Now, I've never been a soldier, and I've never been in contact in a combat situation, but if I have learned anything from talking with those who have, it is that soldiers stand united. They have to be in order to accomplish the task they've been given. An isolated or rogue soldier is a threat to the mission and his brothers and himself. So while we don't know exactly what Archippus did, what can be known is that he had a gospel task that united him with Paul to an even deeper level. And at the end of Colossians, which is almost universally accepted as the letter that went along with this one, Paul mentions Archippus when he says, And say to Archippus, See that you fulfill your ministry that you have received from the Lord. Like Paul, Archippus had a ministry given to him by Jesus Christ. Again, we don't know exactly what it was, but that doesn't matter. Paul knew what it was, and it united he and Archippus and all the others together in a unique and special way. The unity of believers is certainly not easy. It is a daily struggle. As we will see in the coming weeks, it demands humility and service and love. And it runs contrary to our fallen nature. But thankfully, Jesus Christ, our Savior and our Head, has and continues to pray for us, His Church. As we see in John 17, before He goes to the cross, where He asks the Father, I do not ask for these only, but also for those who will believe in me through their word, that they may be one, just as you, Father, are in me and I in you. The glory that you have given me, I have given to them, that they may be one, even as we are one. There are always things threatening to divide the church of Christ. It is why passages like John 17 should be a great encouragement to us. Jesus Christ, our head, continues to daily pray for our unity. But it still means we have to work at it. Just as there's been maybe a positive of the pandemic, if there's a potential negative of the pandemic, it would probably be the potential this has for division within the body. It seems, at least for me, that the feeling of being locked up and isolated has us a little bit more ready to fight than to seek oneness. I think if you just spend five minutes on Facebook and Twitter, you will find that that is unfortunately the case. Each of us already has very strong opinions about almost everything under the sun. Politics, education, medicine, worship style, song choice, the list goes on. Those are hard enough to navigate for unity at, the, at, at times. But now, circumstances have added similarly strong ones on matters such as masks, social distancing, do we open the church, do we open the economy, and much more. And we all have thoughts on these matters. Throw, it all, throw on top of all that the ongoing and pressing social issues. There is agreement that racism, murder, violence, injustice must be condemned. I think Tim did a faithful job of that a few weeks ago. But then there's the mix of ideas, both helpful and unhelpful, of where do we go from here? We need unity. We need to work hard to preserve it. This will mean that sometimes we simply let our strong opinions be heard 
and accept that they're not going to necessarily be followed. Or sometimes it will be that we just need to keep our strong opinions to ourselves for the sake of our brothers and sisters and the unity that we need to have because of Christ. It will demand that we, like Christ, must look not to our own interests, but also to the interests of others, as Paul says in Philippians 2. And it will absolutely demand prayer. Prayer for the unity that is so fragile. Prayer for the unity that can only come by God through His Spirit. Prayer for one another as we labor on for Christ. Prayer for our brothers and sisters, both here and abroad, who are facing unimaginable hardships and difficulties simply because they bear the name of Jesus Christ. But again, what a great opportunity we have to be the unified bride of Christ in a day and a time where unity is severely lacking. May we be one as Christ prayed we would be. And all of this then flows very nicely into Paul's last point. That fellowship conveys affection, fellowship causes unity, but finally, fellowship is caused by the gospel. Paul makes it abundantly clear that affection and unity are rooted in the gospel. In and of themselves, affection and unity are not enough. It is certainly possible to have an affectionate group, but a divided group. And it is equally possible to have a united group, but cold. Without the finished work of Jesus Christ, all this affection and this unity will be short-lived. It will flame out at the first sign of danger. It will tear apart at the first disagreement or obstacle. It will not be able to handle the differences of backgrounds, opinions, and cultures. And Paul knows this. While the theme of the letter is fellowship, the central issue he is concerned about is the reconciliation of Philemon and Onesimus, a master and a slave. Paul's love for both of these men will not produce affection between the two of them. Paul's unified work with the two of these men will not produce a unified work between the two of them either. Affection and unity cannot and will not bring these two men together as brothers. It cannot renew their fractured relationship. So in his greeting, Paul points these dear fellow believers to the Lord who alone can provide exactly what they need. He tells them, grace to you and peace from God, our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Now this greeting is conventional, particularly for Paul. I went back and flipped through every single one of his letters starts with grace and peace to you. Only 1st and 2nd Timothy add the idea of mercy. But just because these greetings are familiar or repeated does not mean they're void of meaning and significance. It would be foolish for us to simply push right past them, just as it would have been equally foolish for Philemon, Aphia, Archippus, and the church to do the same. They would have been encouraged in reading and hearing these words. They would have received them from a beloved brother and a friend whom they longed to see once again. Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ would have been words of refreshment to these faithfully laboring brothers and sisters for the name of Christ. Why? 
Grace and peace, simply put, are the basis for God's relationship with his people. We are familiar with both. Grace is God's unmerited favor. He welcomes his children, not on the basis of anything that they have done or could have done. He calls them beloved despite of their unloveliness. Ephesians 2, 8, and 9, hopefully a familiar passage for all of us. For by grace you have been saved through faith. And this is not your own doing, it is the gift of God, not the result of works, so that no one may boast. All who are in Christ are in Christ according to this standard. We are all equal, unworthy recipients of God's grace poured out on us abundantly in Jesus Christ. Our affection for one another flows out of the grace we have all received. Our union for one, with one another flows out of the grace that places us all before God the Father as equal. Equal sons and daughters with a full inheritance as his children. We have nothing to claim over anyone else. We only can claim Christ who unites us to himself by his spirit. And this naturally then brings us to peace. At its simplest, peace means harmony. The people of God have peace with him and with one another. The hostility between God and man has been removed, and therefore peace is possible with one another. Again, Ephesians 2, this time verses 14 through 16. For he, Christ himself, is our peace, who has made us both one and has broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility by abolishing the law of commandments expressed in ordinances, that he might create in himself one new man in place of the two, so making peace, and might reconcile us both to God in one body through the cross, thereby killing the hostility. Peace is not the fruit of human effort. As much as this world thinks differently, we human, human beings are not the source of peace. We only bring enmity and discord. Before peace can be had between the image bearers, there must be peace with the one whose image we bear. And this type of peace can only come through Jesus Christ, his life, his death, and his resurrection. As Michael Kruger says in one of his books, the power to love one another and to keep the bonds of peace with an, begins with an understanding of God's love for us in Christ. The latter is the foundation for the former. Jesus Christ has made peace between God and man. He has reconciled us to our Heavenly Father. Only then can we know and have peace with one another. Grace and peace are not simply Paul's greeting. They are life-changing realities for the people of God. They are precious and wonderful truths that we must daily come back to, daily remind ourselves of. We cannot have genuine fellowship, fellowship that is filled with affection and unity without grace and peace. Our closing hymn will confess this as we sing, Our cornerstone is Christ alone. And strong in him we stand. Oh, let us live transparently and walk heart to heart and hand in hand. How do we walk heart in heart with affection for one another, both in times of joy and times of trouble? By the grace and peace of God, grace and peace from God our Father. And how do we walk hand in hand? United despite all the things that make us different and all the things that would seek to divide us? 
It is by the grace and peace from our Lord Jesus Christ, our elder brother. We desperately need God's grace and peace. This is why Paul uses it at his greeting for each and every church he writes to. He knows what they need. He pleads with the Lord to give it to him. We need it to stand before him. We need it to stand with one another. We should be asking him to pour it out upon us daily. We must seek to depend upon, deepen our understanding of it. And then worship and give him thanks for his grace and his peace. May this world see us standing, not in our own strength, not even in our own affection and human unity, but in the grace and the peace of God that will enable us to faithfully live as his people. Family letters, sadly, are not as popular or widespread as they once were. Maybe someday they'll make a comeback. Here's to hope. But maybe some of you this morning still write them or receive them, and we'll say emails count, so keep it up. I know Pop-Up's letters are one of the things that Bethany, her family, and I have already felt most absent since his passing. They were special. In them, Pop-Up shared his heart with the entire family. He loved his family. He was joined to them. Philemon is Paul's family letter. His heart is filled with affection for his brothers and his sisters. His soul feels united to them in work and in purpose. As we will see in the weeks ahead, he desires for their fellowship to increase more and more. He knows it will not be easy. He knows there are obstacles. And he knows there are wounds. He knows relationships need restoration, even transformation. But he trusts in the genuine fellowship he has with them and all believers through Jesus Christ, the head of his church. May we be a church marked by our affection for and unity with one another, rooted deeply in the gospel of Jesus Christ. As a church, let us then pursue fellowship, genuine gospel fellowship with one another. Let us pray. Father God, we thank you for the privilege it is to be your people. We have not earned it. It is nothing short of your grace to us and the peace that has been made between us and you through Jesus Christ, our Savior. God, may that truth stir in us affection for you and stir in us affection and unity for one another. We acknowledge that in any day, but in these days in particular, there is much to threaten our affection and unity for each other. God, may we look to you to give us the grace and the peace we need to be united, to be loving one another deeply by your spirit. And may we be a light to this dark world, that they may see us, and that instead of seeing us, they would see you, Jesus Christ, our Savior, our head. And may they bring him glory, we pray. In Christ's name, amen. Our closing hymn this morning is found on page 7, We Are God's People. It may be an unfamiliar hymn to some of us, so the ensemble is going to sing through the first verse. As you get comfortable, sing through, and then together we will sing the last three verses. So please stand and let us together sing, We Are God's People.
now as God's people receive his benediction. The grace of the Lord Jesus Christ and the love of God and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be with you all. Amen.